0: This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we come to your word this morning and we uh, begin simply by thanking you for this gift that we have in, in your truth. We thank you for the gift of Christ that you have Given us eyes to hear and, and our eyes to see and ears to hear, uh, hearts that want to know you more. Father, we know that without Him we couldn't even begin to understand the depths of who you are and what you've done through our Savior. And Father, that's what we do now is come to your word to to hear from you and to understand more about who you are and what you've done through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So it's in His name that I pray. Amen. Well, good morning. We're going to be in Romans chapter 12, if you want to start heading there in your Bibles. And let me take a minute and explain why. Most of you are familiar with the hate-hate relationship that I have with the ocean. Don't get me wrong, the ocean is beautiful and majestic and powerful and useful and all of that, but the empirical evidence of my experience is that even the most innocent foray into the ocean is going to end in pain or vomiting or loss of life. I'm not joking. I I have been snorkeling in some of the most beautiful reefs in the world, vomit. I have waded into the wonderful warm waters of of South Padre Island and was stung by jellyfish and a 12-foot tiger shark showed up. Um, I've been deep sea fishing off the coast of Mexico. Again, vomiting. So, it's it's very clear that there's no good reason for anyone to ever go in the ocean ever again. However, because of the, the, the great attitude that I have towards the ocean, people find it necessary to try to convince me that it's okay to go back into the ocean for all kinds of crazy reasons that you won't, you know, vomit and have pain. A couple of weeks ago, Shannon and I were watching a show about lifeguards on this beach. And, and it, was a, it was a neat show. It was all pretty. And, and as we were watching, Shannon said something like, See, you know, they have shark nets at that beach. It would be okay. You know, you could go into the water like that and just put your feet in the water like those people. Well, she spoke too soon because it turned out that particular episode was about how a swarm of blue-bottled jellyfish came And stung, and the lifeguards had to deal with a bunch of people that got stung by these jellyfish. So, I told Shannon, I said, I think I need to write a children's book. And I will title this book, The Dangers of Ankle-Deep Water. (laughs) Because, you you know, anyone knows that even ankle-deep in the ocean is taking your life in your own hands. Now, what does that have to do with Romans chapter 12? Well, my book idea got me thinking that it got me thinking about the dangers of being ankle deep in a different kind of water. You see, I've been hearing a lot, as I'm sure you have, of talk these days about a return to normal. When will things get back to normal? Is this normal? It should have gotten back to normal a long time ago. Is is there going to be some kind of new normal? But the thing is, I'm not sure we should be so eager to return to normal. Because part of that normal was a faith that had been watered down and sedated by the activities and the amenities of our culture. It was a a double-mindedness, if you will, of of remaining ankle-deep in the ocean of Christian living not venturing far off the shore so we could keep an eye on our stuff on the beach of consumerism. There's security to be found in in not venturing too deep into what it really looks like to live a life for Christ. There's a lot of pleasure and acceptance to be found, not wading too deep into the waters of crosses and holiness. Recently, I had a conversation with several pastors about what returning to, to church looked like for them. And one of the things that we discussed was, was, was what things that we might have thought were good that God has brought from this whole coronavirus mess. And one of the benefits that I mentioned was that the coronavirus, or I should say technically the ramifications of it, served to expose a lot of idolatry in our lives. Let me give you just a few examples it has been exposed that many of us have our Bibles wrapped in a flag that says, don't tread on me. It's this idolatry of independence. It's it's this idolatry of of self-rule within the church that says, you can't tell me what to do. I challenge you to show me the verse in the Bible that says no one is allowed to tell you to do something stupid. Because what I will show you is that the name of the emperor that both Paul and Peter commanded their readers to follow was named Nero. Another idol this past year that has been exposed is that many Christians are far more concerned about their rights as Americans than they are their lives as Christians. Boil it down to the core and it's called syncretism. It's the blending of religions. Meaning many American Christians have have blended the Constitution into their hope for salvation. Many Christians are far more concerned about the threat toward their free speech and gun ownership than they have ever been about their own holiness and Christian walk. And I would say lastly, more than any other, the idol of self-preservation has been, has been exposed to be rampant in the church. When even just the minuscule possibility of an untimely death is, is, is dropped in our laps. Many Christians, even to this day, are cowering with our culture in panic and denial and isolation. Now, don't get me wrong. We should do what we, what we can to protect the weak and the sick. I'm not saying that. But for many, it is no longer a question. It has been made clear that many professing Christians, instead of believing that to live is Christ and to die is gain, believe that to to die is Christ and to live is gain. Now, admittedly, that particular one doesn't have a whole lot to do with you guys because you have taken your lives in your own hands by coming to church here this morning. But when I hear this clamoring to return to normal, I'm not so sure that's a totally good thing. Again, don't get me wrong. I'd love to come to church without the fear of being fined out of existence. And and I I definitely mourn and, and, and hate the loss of life and livelihood that's come about from this. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the large part of that normal that I'm hearing a yearning for There was an impotent faith robed in comfortable idolatry. So when I say I want to talk to you about the dangers of being ankle deep in a different kind of water, what I mean is I want to talk about the dangers of remaining ankle deep in spiritual waters instead of wading in over our heads into lives of sacrificial worship. And to do that, what I want to do is is look at what Paul says that life looks like. And, and and that is best said, I think, in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, if you'd look at that with me. Paul says, I, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God? What is good and acceptable and perfect? Now, the first thing I want you to notice is that Paul begins by saying, therefore. And I want you to notice that because therefore is a very important word in Paul's letters. Every letter that Paul writes, he begins with a description of what God has done. And, 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 and then he says, therefore, this is how you should live. As All of his letters are written like that. This is what God has done, therefore this is how you should live. It means he's concluding the theological portion of this letter, and he's moving on to the application part of this letter. So before we go to the application part, before we go there, what he's concluding in the preceding 11 chapters of Romans is simply this. We are helplessly depraved sinners who have been saved by God. This is a brief summary of Romans one through eleven. Paul writes in Romans chapter three, beginning in verse twenty-one. He says, "But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from law, from the law. Although the prophets and the, the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Here's the point: for there is no distinction; <clears throat> for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God." And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Let me summarize Romans for you this way. And I want to see a show of hands. How many of you did not grow up in church? Raise your hand. You did not grow up in Sunday school and Bible stories. Okay, now, that's, that's good. Now, how many of you did grow up in church? Raise your hand. Now, leave them up. I want you to notice this, I want everybody to see how many people grew up with goldfish snacks and flannel graphs and Bible stories. Because watch this, put your hands down. How many of you have in your background something like drugs or alcohol or promiscuity, leap together with a whole lot of regret, raise your hand. Good. Man, some of you guys raise your hand pretty fast. <laughs> Here's what I want you to see. I want you to notice that church attendance does not equate to godliness. And do you see how it's not your sin either that determines whether or not you can be saved? Because it's not your righteousness that saves you. Our salvation is a gift that God gives to us. If you're struggling with this idea that you're not righteous enough, that you're not good enough, what Paul is saying is that it's not your righteousness that matters. Because listen, you don't have any. That's basically what Paul means when he says, therefore. He means any righteousness we exhibit, any righteousness we can lay hold of, any righteousness that we possess is not our own. It is God's righteousness that he has given to us through Jesus Christ. Therefore, he says. And how does he summarize that gift of God that that leads to this therefore in Romans chapter 12? He simply calls it mercy. Now, I have to ask, why does he use that word? Out of all the words that Paul could have used, why does he use the word mercy? Why doesn't it say according to the grace of God or according to the love of God? I think the answer is pretty simple. Paul uses mercy here because it doesn't just mean forgiveness for the guilty. It also means compassion for the helpless. God wasn't like, fine, I'll do it since you idiots can't figure this out. That's not how he did it. It was for the joy set before him that Christ endured the cross. In Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, Paul said it this way. He said, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a, a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love, there's the compassion, for us. How? How does he show that? In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that's why Paul uses the word mercy Because God didn't just save us, he saved us because he had compassion on us for the mess that we had made out of our lives. So as Paul transitions into what those lives should now look like, when he says, I appeal to you brothers, therefore by the mercies of God, what he means is our lives should be built on God's mercy, not our works. And not our own righteousness. Our lives should exhibit these mercies that Paul is saying have been shown to us in Romans chapter 1 through 11. Think about it this way human history is divided into two pieces, BC and AD. BC stands for before Christ, AD is Anno Domini, which basically means the year of our Lord. Now, non Christian people have changed that to the BCE and the CE, before Common Era and, 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 uh, excuse me, Common Era. But you can change those terms all you want. The fact of the matter still stands that history is classified by what happened before Christ and what happened after Christ came into the world, no matter what we call it. And so is the story of every Christian. Every Christian life is marked by what happened before Christ came into your world and what happened after If you are what you have always been, you are not a Christian. Your AD cannot be the same as your BC. It's not possible. They may look similar maybe when you're first converted, but but the longer and longer you grow in Christ, the more your life is transformed and there's a a larger difference. In other words, we we must wade out beyond the ankle-deep waters of our BC lives, deeper into the ocean of the riches of God's mercy in our AD lives. Well, what does that look like? What does it look like to leave the ankle-deep waters of placid faith and get submerged into God's mercy like Paul is saying? Well, he says it in the back half of verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, when Paul says, present your bodies... He's not talking about some kind of a 4-H livestock presentation where God's looking for the, the choicest piece of mutton to put on the altar. God does not care about what our bodies look like. Trust me. He's not impressed. Scripture sees our bodies as instruments to be used, not trophies to be looked at. The picture Paul actually has in his mind here, it's it's the Old Testament picture of the sacrificial system. Now, there were two types or two categories of sacrifices in the Old Testament. One category was the atonement category, and the other category was the thanksgiving category. You had atonement sacrifices and thanksgiving sacrifices. Now... Now, we can't be a sacrifice for atonement, because that price was already paid by by Christ. God was, was perfectly satisfied with Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross. However, God still wants offerings of thanksgiving. We are still to present our bodies as a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God. That's the difference that Jesus makes in our lives. In the Old Testament, the worshiper brought a sacrifice. In the New Testament, the worshiper is the sacrifice. God does not want something from you. He wants you. If you think about it, though, there is an issue there, a problem. You see, the offering of an animal in the Old Testament, uh, atonement or thanksgiving, it didn't matter, was not a sacrifice until it was slain. But God doesn't want a, a, a dead carcass from us, He wants living sacrifices. Look how he puts it at the end of verse 1. He says, To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Your spiritual worship. So we are made holy by Christ. So that now our lives of sacrificial thanksgiving are acceptable to God because of Christ. So we're made holy and given the ability to do this by Christ, which means lives of voluntary sacrificial thanksgiving for the mercy that God showed us through Christ, by definition, our lives of worship. Because there are lives worshiping what God has done, thanking him for what he has done. So what Paul is saying here is that true worship is no longer an event, and now it's a lifestyle. It's a life built on the mercies of God. It's a life motivated and fueled by the mercies of God, displaying the mercies of God. So do you see the issue? A lot of blank stares. You see, the problem is, is a living sacrifice is prone to crawl off the altar. A dead sacrifice will stay there all day. Living sacrifices, not so much. So instead of commanding, Paul appeals to us, to remain on the altar. Not because we can earn anything from it. Christ already did that. But because we want to desperately both glorify and thank God for what he's done for us in Christ. Paul, Paul, Paul instead of commanding, he appeals to to us to wade further and further into the mercies of Romans chapter 1 through 11 until we want nothing more than to offer our lives as spiritual instruments of worship. He wants us to leave the idolatrous shores of of comfort and peace and allow ourselves to get pulled far out to the sea by, by by the riptide of God's grace. Cedar Springs Church, allow yourself to to get lost in the depths that even as a hopeless sinner, God now tells you, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let the vastness that you are now a fellow heir with the creator of heaven and earth swallow you. Give yourself over to the waves. Allow yourself to be overtaken. That neither life, nor death, angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, lose yourself in this, is able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, your Lord. Allow yourself to slip under those waves. Because you know who's included in the category of all creation that cannot separate you from the love of God? You. You cannot separate yourself from the love of God. If you are in Christ Jesus, allow the expansive weight that that not even you can separate yourself from the love of God. If you're like me, there's a, there's a tension at this point, though. You want to do this. You want to live lives of sacrificial thanksgiving and worship. You want to offer your body. You want to stay on that altar. But all the time, you find yourself joining Paul and saying, Why do I do what I don't want to do? And I don't do what I want to do. Well, here it is. It's because the law is a poor motivator. We see this problem at the very beginning of Scripture. Cain made an offering of obligation, and God didn't want it. Obligation will always leave you either burnt out or disappointed when you fail. We are not called to switch from an Old Testament to-do list to a New Testament to-do list. The Christian alternative to immoral behaviors is not just a new list of moral ones. No, the Holy Spirit himself replaces the works of the law by transforming you <clears throat> instead into a fruit-bearing tree. He replaces the works that you're supposed to do and he makes you and transforms you into something you can't help but do. Listen to how Paul puts it to the Galatians who were struggling with this in Galatians chapter 3 verses 1 through 3. He said, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Meaning, were you saved by works or by faith? And then he says, this is, I love Paul. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Meaning, did God save you so that you could do the rest? So so how does that work then? How am I transformed into what Paul is talking about if I don't do the work? Well, Paul describes this as a two-step process. He says in verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So first he says that we are being transformed. The the first thing he says, though, is that before we are transformed, we must stop being conformed to this world. Listen, this world is not a neutral third party. The world is not like some stage that good and evil battle it out on. This world is actively trying to press us into its mold. Right now, this world wants us to conform to its fear and comfort and success and pride and wealth. In fact, in the Greek, the emphasis on this passage is actually in stopping something that has already begun. The NIV NIV picks up on this, this subtlety, if you have that translation, and it says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Because... This is exactly what I mean when I, when, I, when I say that we need to think a little bit before we start clamoring for a return to normal because part of that normal was lives that were being conformed to this world. Late one night, Shannon and I were in our room watching TV or reading or something like that and, and, our, and our oldest son was out back. Uh, he had a bunch of his football buddies over for the, for the fire pit. And if you've been to our house, you know the fire pit's right outside our, our bedroom window. We could hear them rummaging around the barn looking for wood and horsing around, things that the high school boys would do. But then, for some reason, the sun briefly shone into our window for a period of time. I'm just kidding. It wasn't the sun. My son couldn't find the lighter fluid, and so he thought he'd just use gasoline. That's Same thing, right? So I went outside, and after I laughed at the singed eyebrows and the significantly subdued demeanor of, of young men who had just been reminded of their mortality. I, uh, I asked my son to come help me with something for a second. Now, that, I didn't need any help. That was just a ploy to, to protect his dignity. I, I needed to talk to him. I, I, I needed to do... What I needed to do is I needed to explain to him that gasoline is not like lighter fluid. And I needed to ask him to think just a skosh before he hurt someone or burnt down our house. But most importantly, burnt down our house being honest what that really is it's in, in the true essence of the word what I needed to do was discipline him I needed to transition his ignorance from foolishness to wisdom now what if while we were talking or when we were done talking my son said to me dad this isn't fun anymore can we just go back to before we came in here what would we think about that I wasn't educating my son to make his life miserable. I was educating him to protect himself and others. In a similar way, we need to look. We need to not look. Let me put it that way. We need to not look at the difficulties and the uncomfortableness of this past year and say to our Heavenly Father, listen, this really isn't fun anymore. Can we just go back to before all this started? Because ours is a God who disciplines those he loves like sons and daughters. What I'm trying to say is that this year was not some cosmic accident that slipped past God and accidentally affected his people. Our Heavenly Father has been using this past year to educate us by exposing different ways that we have been conformed to this world. When they're yanked out of our hands and it hurts. That's the first part of this process that Paul is talking about, is, is to resist being conformed to this world, to resist being drawn in by its measuring systems and, its, and, and, the, and the way that people relate to each other. And the second part of this process, though, is where so many Christians miss the point. We make thousands of decisions every day that we don't even think about. We just do it. We are creatures of reflex. And what Paul is saying is trying to white-knuckle being a better person isn't going to work because your reflexes are off. Your mind is going to have to be transformed before those impulses you have can be conformed to Christ instead of the world. Your mind is sinful and it's actively working against you. It has to be transformed. It has to be renewed. In other words, the the transformation to live the lives that Christ uh, has given our hearts the desire to live, it happens from the inside out. And so many Christians try to do this from the outside in. If I just try hard enough, then maybe I'll want to. It's not what the Bible says. So then how are our minds renewed? Let me walk you through this because it's very, very important. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in verse 4, Paul says this. The God of this world, that's Satan, listen, has blinded the minds. Paul's saying in Romans 12, we need to renew our minds. This says, Paul says, Paul has blinded the minds of unbelievers. To what? What has he blinded them to? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So those who are not saved cannot be transformed. Why? Why can they not be transformed? Because their minds have been blinded to the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. What does that have to do with us? We're we're not unbelievers. Well, just a few verses earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul said this. He said, And we all with unveiled face, meaning we're not blinded, beholding the glory of the Lord, And therefore, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. I tack on to the end, not our effort. So we can be transformed because our minds are not blinded, but we don't renew them ourselves. We can be transformed because our minds have been unveiled to the glories of of, of Jesus in the gospel. Our job in this process of renewing our minds is to simply behold. To behold the glories of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Spirit does the work. God has unveiled our minds so that we can behold the, the mind renewing of glory, the mind renewing glory of the Lord, which Paul said is found in the gospel. Let, let Paul show you how that works with two more passages that say something similar. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 and 19, Paul said, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns spiritual songs singing making melody to the lord with your heart verse 20 giving thanks there's that sacrificial thanksgiving always in doing always in every excuse me for everything to god the father in the name of our lord jesus christ so paul is saying that in order to be transformed I need to look into the gospel, I need to see the gospel, I need to see the glory, I need to behold the glory of God in the gospel, and to do that I need to be filled by the Spirit. So I guess I need to speak in tongues and do a bunch of other weird stuff, right? Don't, get, don't worry, no. In Colossians chapter 3, it's a sister letter to Ephesians, Paul said this, what I want you to do is I want you to notice the similarities that tie these verses together, but I want you to listen for the subtle difference at the beginning. In chapter 3, verse 16 of Colossians, Paul said, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In Ephesians, he said, Be filled with the Spirit. Here he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with thankfulness. There's that sacrificial thanksgiving. In your hearts to God. So in Ephesians, Paul tells us to be filled with the Spirit. In Colossians, he tells us that what that means is is let the word of God dwell richly in your hearts. Being filled with the Spirit is letting the word of God dwell in your hearts. So let's put all of these pieces together. If we would be transformed into lives uh, of sacrificial living, first we must, must struggle against, we must strive, we must not be conformed to this world. But that transformation can only happen by the renewing of our minds from the inside out. And that renewing is only the work of the Holy Spirit, not us. And the way he renews our minds is simply by us beholding the glory of the Lord in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Submerging our minds in the gospel, the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sacrificial worship comes from transformed lives. Transformation, that transformed life comes from the renewing of the mind. And the renewing of the mind comes from beholding the glory of the Lord in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, Scripture. Do you want to be the Christian you want to be? Immerse your mind in the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ found in Scripture. Not TV shows. Not stupid pictures and podcasts and that that's, that's garbage. It's cluttering up space that is meant, is meant to hold the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ that the Holy Spirit uses to transform us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I got nothing else to say. That's it. Do you want to be the Christian the Bible tells you to be? Read the Bible. Soak in it. Immerse yourself in it. Devote yourself to it. Even if you don't know what you're reading, read through numbers. The Holy Spirit will turn you into something you're not. Do you want your life to be transformed into this ongoing sacrifice of thanksgiving and worship? then we must allow the Holy Spirit to to renew our minds with the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ found in His Word. Let us not clamor for this return to normal, which is conformity to this world. Let us leave the comfort and the idolatry of ankle-deep water behind and lose ourselves in the expansive depths of the mercies of God in Christ that are seen in His Word. This is an excellent opportunity to do this. To wade out into the ocean of glories that are, that are found in Scripture and just simply behold. That's it. Your job's done. And then we'll join the, the songwriter saying this. We simply behold the glories of God. Take the world, but give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name, but His love abides forever through eternal years. They stay the same. Take this world and give me Jesus. In His cross my trust shall be. Take this world and give me Jesus till that day, my Lord, I see. O the height and depth of mercy, O the length and breadth of love, O the fullness of redemption, pledge of endless life above, take this world, my God is enough. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a gracious God you are. It's so amazing that all you've asked us to do is behold your glory. And that by doing so you'll you'll transform us into to sacrifices that climb on the altar instead of off. To 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 pursue our heart's desire of thanksgiving and worship. Father, I pray that you would continue to open up our eyes and our hearts and our minds to the beauty of what you have given us in your word. That you have condescended simply into paragraphs and sentences, and through that, you can show us your glory. Give us a hunger for that glory and a desire to behold. And then, Father, I pray that you would show us and give us the blessing of recognizing the transformation you're doing in our hearts that we would only have a growing hunger to behold more of Your glory and more of Your mercy in Scripture. Father, all of this is given to us. It has been gifted to us and done for us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so it is in His name and His name alone that I pray. Amen.